Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, I am joined once again with my good friend Jonathan Streeter to continue our discussion, our dissection, our analysis, yes, even our post-mortem of General Conference from April of 2021. In today's episode, we look at the talks given in the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. In fact, we end up having so much fun that we don't get all the way through the talks. There are two left to go over. We will save those last two for another day. But believe me, the discussion we have on the other talks is well worth the time spent listening. At least, I can certainly say it was well worth the time recording. But before we get to that discussion, I want to thank everybody who has contributed to Radio Free Mormon and encourage those of you who have not. Please go to Radio Free Mormon webpage. That's RadioFreeMormon.org. Click on the donate button and make a monthly contribution today. $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon, that's me, broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now, on to the discussion of General Conference Saturday afternoon session. Hello and welcome to part two of our breakdown of the spring 2021 General Conference, where Radio Free Mormon is going to help us kind of dig through and figure out what went on now that we're on the outside. So RFM, I want to dive right into it because we are short on time today. Are you good to go? I am good to go. I just wanted the audience to know that uh, just before the show started, we were both singing some Gilbert and Sullivan together. Did you want to give them a taste of that? I, I don't know. Uh, if you want to start. Do you want me to? I can do that. I understand that you played the, the Major General once in the Pirates of Penzance. Yes, that was that was uh, a shining, glowing star in my memories and in my life as well, my sure. dream. Well, it's a wonderful part. Uh, can I ask you to guess what part I played in the same production? Not the one you were in, but in a different uh, production. The, the, you had to have been the Pirate King. Ah, you're correct, sir. <laughs> and it is a glorious thing to be a Pirate King. Mm. All right. Well, I would love to do that. We'll have to dedicate a special show to that. Because, but where I have to start, I only have two hours. So we got to make sure we get through this. We'll have a sing-along <laughs> sometime. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's see. Second session, afternoon of September. That's when they do the sustaining of the general authorities. Yes, and they put it on the, uh, well, the session that is the least watched. So if something <laughs> is supposed to be so important, they put it in the least watched session. I think it's generally understood that the Saturday afternoon session is not exactly prime time when it comes to general conference. But yes, we don't have to play this again, okay? We can just skip right through this, but I've got to note that for the third time in a row now, they are asking for sustaining votes to an audience that they cannot see. They have no idea how anybody's voting or whether they are voting at all. And it doesn't really seem to make much difference to them, Jonathan. They're just going to go their merry way, regardless of who votes which way or what. It's really metaphorically appropriate, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> everyone's going to sustain. We don't really care what the vote is. Just the fact that there was a sustaining vote now justifies whatever crap that we do in the meantime. I don't have the um, the link up and ready to go. I should have had it. But there was a posting on Reddit where somebody found in a primary manual where it was teaching primary age children what common consent was or, uh, you know, you know, the principle of common consent in the church. Mm -hmm. And it, in the manual, it said, basically, 
whenever, you know, we're given the privilege of raising our arm and giving and giving consent to the leaders of the church. And that means whatever they do, we support. And the, the commentary on it is like, actually, that's like the opposite of what common consent is. And what it's, is common consent, do you think? Well, it should be something that is earned. I mean, what, what you're getting into when you think about this, and this is something I never knew as a Mormon, is that you have to examine what the polity of your church is, because the polity is the lifeblood of religious authority in your organization. And if you just Google on Wikipedia church polity, you'll find a, a Wikipedia page when you learn that there's like a whole bunch of different types of polity. And a congregationalist polity is one where the authority really resides in the members of a specific congregation, and then they vote among themselves to select the pastor. And by the same token, they put a check on what that pastor does. If he steps out of line, the congregation can withdraw any authority that he has. And the law of common consent was much closer to that form of polity when it was first instituted in the church, where it wasn't that the the brethren sat on their red velvet thrones and you got the privilege of bowing your head and then doing whatever they did. It was that the only reason they got to sit in those red velvet thrones is because the membership of the church granted them their consent not to govern, but to occupy those thrones with the understanding that if they mess it up, they're not going to have their butts in that seat next time because they will not get that consent. Right. That certainly is not the way it is today. Today it is no. pro forma. We don't even actually need to have anybody raise any hands or certainly not to see anybody raise hands because we're just going to do what we're going to do and you're going to like it. Yeah. Well, and that 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 is the um, the beauty of it all. It was just kind of fun to see. I mean, I don't know that we even need to hear it, but if there's a timestamp you particularly want to do. Um, that's okay. You know, it's the same old, same old, but they do make sure both at the beginning and at the end, it's Elder Oaks who's doing it this time. Uh, they make sure that they uh, announce that if any of you actually opposes any of the proposals, uh, you're invited to contact your state president. Yeah. <laughs> we would be happy to initiate disciplinary proceedings <laughs> on you. Turn yourself in at the local police station. Yes. Okay, so we can go past that. <laughs> now we get to the, the religious constabulatory. Anyway, all right. So <clears throat> we constabulary duties to be done. Yes. Okay. Right. So church auditing go... department report. Okay, auditing department a... report. Okay, here's the thing about this. Um, this individual, who's apparently the managing director of the church auditing, the first... sorry, the ch yeah, the managing director of the church auditing department. He's going to get up here and read the church auditing department report of 2020. And most people just snooze through this, even more so than they snooze through other parts of General Conference. But I remember once uh, watching General Conference with a lifelong member of the church. And I told him, hey, pay attention to what's being said here. And he says, why? And I said, because you'll find out that if you really pay attention, that absolutely nothing is being said here. There's just sort of some hands waved and sort of uh, everything's okay, everything's fine, everything's on the up and up, but they're not gonna give you any numbers. They're not gonna give you any information. All they're gonna say is we've looked at the information and it's okay, trust us. The other thing that's funny about it, by the way, is they say that they're an independent organization. They're independent. Yes. Did you notice that? They're independent yes. of all the other organizations in the church, except for, of course, 
well, at least the first presidency, right? Who they're speaking on behalf of and who this letter is written to. The report is a letter that's written to the first presidency. And that's actually how he says it to the first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then within the context of the letter, it's very clear that this is uh, this isn't Price Waterhouse. OK, this isn't an independent uh, right. auditing group. What this is, is a very devout church centric auditing group because they start talking about uh, scriptures and revelation and why it is they do what they do. And while you listen to this, it's just two paragraphs long. I think it's wonderful to listen to. Um, listen to all the weasel words. Even all when right. they're saying nothing, there's at least four different reasonable, <laughs> four different we weasel words, excuse me. One of them has to do with reasonable. It was in front of me on the screen uh, that I've identified. See how many you can identify. Okay, we're starting at the beginning, ready? Yes, sir. ...of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Dear brethren, directed by revelation as recorded in section 120 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Council on the Disposition of the Tithes, composed of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Presiding Bishopric, authorizes... Who will all sign my paycheck. ...expenditure <laughs> of church funds. Church entities disperse funds in accordance with approved budgets, policies, and procedures. And we're not going to tell you what church those budgets, auditing, policies, and procedures are, but they're approved. Yeah. Which consists of credentialed professionals and is independent of all other church departments and entities. Okay. An independent organization is outside of the organization, and they could say, you guys are totally full of fraud. There's all these violations, and they would get no punishment, no loss of employment. In fact, that would prove their integrity as an independent auditing organization. When he says independent of all other organizations, all other other than the first presidency and these people that I just listed. Right. And he says independent of all other church departments and entities. So he's saying it. Uh, I don't think independent. I don't think the word means what he thinks it means. Yeah. But go ahead. Has responsibility for uh, to perform audits for the purpose of providing reasonable assurance reasonable regarding assurance. contributions received, expenditures made and safeguarding of church assets. I'm telling you that all the numbers are in order in the books. Well, that sounds reasonable. Thank you, President Oaks. That's a reasonable assurance. Just don't ask him to look at the books. Is that the typical standard for financial audits is just reasonable assurance? I have no idea. Maybe it is. I'm not um, a bookkeeper. I'm not a whatever you call it, an auditor. We'll have to get uh, Ryan McKnight to comment on that because I think that's kind of like his thing. All right, let's keep going. Sorry, this is going to take forever. Based upon audits performed, what audits? auditing is of the opinion that in all material respects, contributions received, expenditures made, and assets of the church for the year 2020 have been recorded and administered in accordance with approved church budgets, policies and accounting practices. The church follows the practices taught to its members of living within a budget, avoiding debt and saving against a time of need. Boy, are they saving against a time of need. You know, it would be nice if one of those times of need showed up. They're so saving against a time of need. I just want to mention reasonable assurance based upon audits performed Okay, that's not really telling us what the audits were. 
Um, church auditing is of the opinion, there's three, that in all material respects, contributions received, et cetera, have been done according to the policies of the church. By the way, that, uh, that entire paragraph would be true even if they had performed absolutely zero audits. Yeah. Because they say based upon audits performed. <laughs> Not only that, that would be true if the secret internal working documents that established the approved church policies meant that you hide money and shuffle it into a, you know, a third party entity. Well, if they do that, even if it was completely illegal, it was still performed according to church policy. And since there's zero transparency, nobody can know. Right. And but this way, report still gets to be said. Yes. And from what we know about the way the church organization is structured and the people who know about the contents of the Enzyme Peak uh, Fund, mm -hmm. this, this guy doesn't know anything about it. He has no. Oh, that's uh, true. He has no information about anything that goes on in that fund. That's only known by the first presidency and uh, the presiding bishopric and the guy who's in charge of the fund itself. But if that guy gives him a reasonable assurance, oh yeah, everything's on the square, it's on the up and up, then, you know, especially if he's a higher priesthood authority, then what are you gonna do? He's a higher priesthood authority, he wouldn't lie. No, so you're just repeating what it is that you've heard in that respect. But I think all he's talking about here is tithing received and the way it's been expended. Oh, the, no, 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 no. You have to understand that if you look at the tithing receipt, okay, there's no such thing as tithing in the church. There is Schrodinger's tithing. It used to be that there was tithing because you fill out your receipt and it said, put this amount for tithing and this amount for like the missionary fund or something else. But now it says that you, you can specify what you think you might want it to be, but the church takes all money in under the same heading and puts it into a bucket, regardless of it's your tithing or your missionary fund or whatever it is. And then when they pull it out, it's Schrodinger's cat in that you don't know if it's dead or alive until you open the box and look. Well, tithing, you don't know if it's tithing until they pull it out and use it for things that are under the heading of tithing. Then that you can call tithing. But if they just pull it all out and stuff it into the Ensign Peak Fund or whatever, well, then that's not tithing because it was given with the understanding that the church would use it for whatever it needed to at the time it needed, hmm. but not necessarily tithing. Anyway, that's my rant on that. Good point. Are we ready for the first substantive talk? Uh, let's see. Let us go. That one is just, those are always so interesting to me because it's just like, you know, it's now time for the ritualistic pulling of the wool over the member's eyes. But let's go to, uh, to Jowls himself. Elder Jeffrey Holland, not as the world giveth. He gives a talk now to the first presidency make... of the church. Sorry, of Jesus. having technical times. Go ahead. That's OK. Um, I just want to say a little bit about his talk because I'm going to synopsize it first and then we'll just play a few clips. OK, I think it's going to be okay. easier that way. So Elder Holland, he's getting older. He seems a little bit weaker. He's getting more tired in his delivery. He's sort of like the lion in winter or as Bill Real might call him, the liar in winter. <laughs> now, that would be Bill Real calling that, not me. Okay. No. The Lion in Winter. But the sum and substance of his talk, not as the world giveth, obviously a reference to peace, right? This is the scripture. Uh, the sum and substance of his talk is that Jesus gives peace. But there isn't a lot of peace in the world right now. And in fact, Jesus is going to be taking peace from the world in accordance with the prophecies of the last days, right? But in spite of the fact that Jesus is supposed to take peace from the earth in preparation for a second coming, Elder Holland tells us we need to try and put peace back into the world by what we do and how we interact with other people. 
even though this would seem to delay Jesus' second coming. I mean, if he's trying to take peace out of the world and we're intent on putting it back and could be seen as fighting against God, that's what he's going to say. But then oh, he's no, now, sort of, now you're going down the Zionist route. <laughs> am I? <laughs> Where we're going to foment crisis in the Middle East so we can usher in the conditions of Armageddon. Oh, yeah. I actually, no, I, I like the message. I mean, I think it's a if you as a religion, regardless of your truthfulness or not, if you can instill some principles in your people who actually will promote peace, by all means, go do that. I don't want to criticize them for that. Absolutely. And I'm certainly not going to do that uh, at all. So Elder Holland seems to realize, though, halfway through his talk, nothing we do is going to help actually put peace back in the world. Mm. God will prevail. And so he settles for us having individual peace in our hearts which he assures us comes to us only through Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just come to us through Christ, if you read the fine print. It comes only after we obey all the principles of mm. the gospel, i.e. it comes only when we do everything that the church tells us we need to do. Right. In other words, obey all the commandments. And of course, the flip side is going to be there always lurking in the background that if we are not feeling peace, then that's because we are not obeying all the commandments. So once again, this talk is sort of a trip to guilt trip city. Yeah. Okay. Is there a timestamp you want to start at? Yeah. Timestamp 245. Just a couple of sentences here, because here he talks about the, uh, all the bad stuff is going to be happening in the last days. Of course, my theory about Latter-day contention isn't very original. 2,000 years ago, the Savior warned that in the last days, there would be wars and rumors of wars later saying that peace would be taken from the earth. Okay, there's that clip right there. So there's the idea about peace is going to be taken from the earth. Now, if you go to timestamp 357, which isn't much further on, he's going to talk about how we need to put the peace back into the earth. And he's doing it, by the way, in terms of this Great Depression. He says, we haven't lived through a world war. Uh, we haven't lived through a Great Depression. And now he's going to give this extended metaphor with like banking terms about how we need to uh, put deposits of peace back in the earth. You'll see what I mean as he goes on. We are, however, facing a kind of third world war that is not a fight to crush our enemies, but a conscription marshalling the children of God to care more about each other and to help heal the wounds we find in a conflicted world. The Great Depression we now face has less to do with the external loss of our savings and more to do with the internal loss of our self-confidence. With real deficits of faith and hope and charity all around us. But the instruments we need to create a brighter day and grow an economy of genuine goodness are abundantly provided for in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot afford, and this world cannot afford, our failure to put these gospel concepts and fortifying covenants to full use, personally and publicly. Okay, so there uh, he's talking about how we need to put peace back into the world. In fact, he goes so far as to say the world cannot afford our failure to put these gospel concepts, et cetera, 
and be, bring peace back into the world by the way we treat other people. So that much is clear, right? Did you have any comments mm -hmm. about this so far? No, I, th I mean, he's he's for that whole paragraph, I think, is speaking to the best aspects of Mormonism. It, it calls upon each individual to show and reflect the love that they have held up as an ideal in the Christ figure in their lives in the world around them. And I think particularly when there seems to be so much chaos and and almost, you know, hatred around the world, calling people to act on those convictions is great. It goes a little bit into the gray area when he adds fortifying covenants to gospel concepts, because in Mormonism, covenants is a very specific thing that binds you to the expectations and demands of the church and its leaders. But for the most part, I'm OK with that message. All right, so now we'll go to timestamp 543. This is the part where he recognizes that this is a bit conflicting what he's laid out so far. Peace is gonna be taken from the earth, but he's saying to put peace back into the earth. How does that work? Well, we'll settle for having peace individually in our own lives and maybe those immediately around us. Okay. In spite of frightful prophecies and unsettling scriptures, declaring that peace would be taken from the earth generally, the prophets, including our own beloved, beloved Russell M. Nelson, have taught that it does not have to be taken from us individually. So, this Easter, let's try to practice peace in a personal way, applying the grace and healing balm of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ to ourselves, and our families, and all those we can reach around us. Fortunately, even astonishingly, this soothing salve is made available to us without money and without price. Okay, so there's the end of that clip. So that's the part about how we need to apply peace personally and those immediately around us. But next, and I, I assume that you have no problem with that either. I have no problem with that. No, I actually, I think that that is, uh, you know, there's a there's a trend to, you know, people have talked a lot about victimhood uh, society and that are, you know, there's a trend in people seeing the world through the lens of how they are victimized. And that allows them to place themselves in a hierarchy of oppression and then use that for kind of moral grandstanding to demand change. And it's not just progressive change, it's revolutionary change. And it, if you talk any of them, okay, we're going to tear down the system. What are we going to replace it with? How are we going to move forward? There's not much in terms of plan beyond tearing down the system, but all that stems from finding that, you know, not being content with what this message is, which is where if you can find personal peace, then you can deal with any conflicts. And that helps you deal not only with your own existential crises, but also with interacting with other people around you. When you're doing that from a place of personal peace, it's much easier to grant humanity to other people. Um, so I, I actually really like this message. Right. Now he's going to go immediately into the next part, which is where he says that the way to get peace is to do everything that we are supposed to do. I'm pretty sure this is here. But he also says that we do this, we call down the powers of heaven and it will resolve any kind of challenge that we might have in our life if we just do everything that we're taught to do within the LDS church. Mm, okay. Such help and hope is dearly needed 
Because in this worldwide congregation today are many who struggle with any number of challenges, physical or emotional, social or financial, or a dozen other kinds of trouble. But many of these we are not strong enough to address in and of ourselves. For the help and peace we need is not the kind the world giveth. No, for the truly difficult problems, we need what the scriptures call the powers of heaven. And to access these powers, we must live by what these same scriptures call principles of righteousness. Now, understanding that connection between principle and power is the one lesson the human family never seems able to learn. So says the God of heaven and earth. Okay, so there's the end of that clip. Yeah. But you can see where he's working in the principles of righteousness. We have to follow those, which are, of course, the principles that we're taught to follow in the LDS church. Through doing that, we can access the powers of heaven. And through accessing the powers of heaven, we can resolve any problem, no matter what the challenges are. And he lists them out there. Uh, that we face. So that's the part where uh, the connection is made between the peace that we can feel, the resolution of the problems we experience, and doing everything that we are supposed to do, which means that if our problems are not resolved and we don't feel peace, then there's only one reason for that to be the case. And do you know yeah. what that is? Uh, that you you haven't done enough. You haven't prayed enough. You haven't obeyed enough. You haven't done your meetings. You're, you're behind in your tithing. There's more that you can do. There's always more you can do. Right. And so that's the, that's the guilt trip there. Yeah. Any thoughts and, from you? Yeah. I mean, to me, when, you know, there's a strong contingent of people when they leave Mormonism, they still find a great deal of peace and comfort in the message of Christianity. And this really draws a stark contrast where he starts out his talk and he's talking about all of the things that people really find helpful and comforting and ennobling in Christianity. The, the, the balm that they receive in, in terms of comfort in times of need. But by adding this last part where you can only really get that by deference to the edicts and demands of the brethren in the church, he's doing the thing that Christians would say Christ condemned this, the Pharisees for doing anyway, which is standing at the gate, separating people, individuals from God and not allowing them to enter. Where, so when people leave the church and they still hold on to Christianity, this is the biggest affront because they're taking the beautiful aspects of Christianity and making these uh, men claiming, you know, in the hubris of their pride, claiming the authority to grant and deprive people from that connection with God. And so it, it's just I see it as a um, a betrayal of the first part of his talk as soon as he inserts the need for people to obey the brethren here. Yes, and at the end of his talk, which we're going to rapidly, this is going to be timestamp 1339 in his talk, he concludes, and you know, um, Elder Holland is usually very good with his metaphors. He may use them to extreme or go too far with them. That's a matter of personal taste. But in this particular metaphor, he's going to talk about the Passover. And I think he hits a clinker on this metaphor, yeah. because the Passover in the Old Testament, we all know the story, at least if we watched the Ten Commandments when we were a kid. And we know that the Passover is where the 
uh, God sends the angel of death down among the Egyptians and the Hebrew children, they paint the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the posts and lintels of their doors. And the Passover means is that the angel of God, the angel of death, passes them by, passes over them, leaves them untouched and doesn't bother them and goes on to kill, you know, the other people who weren't so smart to have the blood of the lamb painted on their doorway. But here he uses it seemingly in the opposite kind of way. And if you'll play this paragraph, I think you'll see what I mean. All right, here we go. May I close where I began? Tomorrow is Easter. A time for the righteous principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his atonement to pass over, pass over conflict and contention, pass over despair and transgression, and pass over ultimately over death. It's a time to pledge total loyalty in word and deed to the Lamb of God, who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows in his determination to finish the work of salvation in our behalf. There you go. You were making a funny face there. Why was that, Jonathan? Well, okay, so I can understand why he's using the Passover metaphor because there's this idea that Christ's crucifixion occurred around the time of Passover. And so by extension, Easter is connected chronologically to Passover. But your point earlier where the Passover was the angel of death you know, moving on to the next house because you had lamb blood over your door frame so that your firstborn would not be killed. Like <laughs> passing over means the entity is going to skip you and go on to the next one. So if Christ pass over uh, you in the midst of your conflict and contention, you don't want that. You want Christ, Christ to come in. So it, I agree. It's a, it's a jumbled metaphor. It is a bit of a mess, but uh, I think I understand what he was trying to say. Yeah, uh, He did get in there also that this is the time that we need to pledge total loyalty in word and deed to the Lamb of God, by which, of course, in LDS speak, that means to the LDS church and its leaders. And this is the only way to find peace in the world. He emphasizes it again in his conclusion to make sure nobody misses that point. Well, and, and this is where I think some people finding Christianity on the way out of, of the church uh, will actually latch on to statements like this because then they'll say, wait a second, you know, he told me to total loyalty and word and deed to the Lamb of God. So when I sit down for my Temple Recommend interview, asking for permission to enter what is framed to me as the house of God, they don't simply say, do you, are you loyal in word and deed to Christ, the Lamb of God? They then follow that up. And what about Joseph Smith and all the other prophets and brethren who are there? So it elevates them to that sort of thing. Yes. Are you ready to go to the next talk? Let's do it. We're you speeding have along. No, it's okay. called Poor Little Ones by Elder Jorge T. Becerra. And if you want to start at the beginning, he tells a real nice story about his dad, traveling around with his dad when his dad would see people poor on the roadways, and then he would run over them and then back up and run over them again. It's really a surprising talk to hear in general conference. Actually, he doesn't say that. What he says <laughs> is he would help them out from time to time with things that they needed. I'm just seeing if... Everybody was paying attention. I often thought if I was 
speaking in general conference, I would sneak something like that in there just to see if people were paying attention. But can you play this first part of the story? Okay. Boy, I remember driving in the car with my father and seeing individuals on the roadside who had found themselves in difficult circumstances or who needed help. My father would always make the comment, pobrecito, which means poor little one. On occasion, I watched with interest as my father would help many of these people, especially when we would travel to Mexico to see my grandparents. He would typically find someone in need and then go privately and provide that help that they needed. I later discovered that he was helping them enroll in school, buy some food, or provide in some way or another for their well-being. He was ministering to a poor little one that came across his path. In fact, in my growing up years, I cannot remember a time when we did not have someone living with us who needed a place to stay as they became self-reliant. Watching these experiences created a spirit of compassion towards my fellow man and for those in need. Okay, so I think that's a very nice message, one which we could and should emulate. Did you have any comments about that, Jonathan, before I tell a little story of my own? Uh, I don't know. Having people come and stay in your house sounds nice. It sounds like compassion and everything. It just immediately reminded me of Joseph Smith because he frequently had families, orphans, uh, young children stay in his house. They took care of him and then he would secretly become engaged to them. And that's just because that is a pattern for sexual predators to prey upon vulnerable people. Um, and so to see that happen in Joseph Smith, it's just an uncomfortable thing. But that's because I know the history of Joseph Smith marrying his foster children. Um, the the audience members don't know that history. So and he probably doesn't even know that history. So anyway, that's all came to my mind. But I agree that the principle of compassion, uh, looking out for the you know people in need is is a good one. Right. So I just want to tell a little story here, because when he talks about people living in his house, and helping people out. It always uh, brings up a certain story in my mind about my personal history. I'm going to share it here very briefly without a lot of detail, okay? okay. Uh, this is back in 1992, so I can look it back on. It's almost 30 years ago now. So this has to do uh, with when I was married to my first wife. We've got two little kids at home, and there is a young man. His name is Jim. I won't give his last name, though I should. And uh, he had just joined the church, just become converted. He's 18 years old. He actually is going to be going on a mission when he turns 19. But when he joined the church, his parents threw him out of the house. And he had been living at other people's place, another person's place, and that ended up not working. But uh, what we did was we volunteered because we had these stories that we had heard and that I had heard about Joseph Smith and Emma taking people in, you know, and they would sleep on the floor and give them the bed. Well, we didn't have to go that far. There's a bedroom upstairs where Jim could uh, live. While he's uh, preparing for his mission, going off to work, I'm going off to work during the day at the prosecutor's office. And by the end of 1992, things are very, very strange. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But what I end up learning after Jim has now gone on his mission at the end of 1992 is that he and my first wife, while I was off at work, were at home doing things that were probably... I don't know, not according to strict Mormon orthodoxy. I'll just put it that way, okay? So They were drinking tea together. They were having tea parties. Yes, they oh were. Oh, my God. They were having I'm tea sorry. parties in the upstairs. No, you don't have to be sorry about it. I'm just saying that um, it, there are things that sound good in theory, and maybe nine times out of ten they work out in theory, 
or maybe five times out of 10, I don't know. But sometimes when they don't work out, they really don't work out. And so that's why I, I hear this and I go, yeah, I, 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 I'm in favor of helping people as much as you can. But sometimes if you go too far, you can end up on the short end of the stick, so to speak. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so now people know a little bit more about me. This explains a whole bunch of your snarky comments about Does it really <laughs> about former wives. Does anyway, it? <laughs> we'll talk about my second wife at some point. Oh, I got a lot okay. of snark there too, as well. Okay, okay here we go. <laughs> so now we're going to go down to um, timestamp four point oh five because here he talks about going around and ministering to different people in the stake. I think it's in the stake uh, in the church anyway. And what he does is he's talking about instead of just going through a list, we need to pray and we need to get the revelation from God and say, oh, we need to visit this person on the list. And what he does is this wonderful example of uh, a question that he asked this uh, couple, Jeff and Heather, who are, of course, uh, inactive or less active, as we like to say now. And uh, I just love this question that he asks them. Uh, can you play that? Let's do it. I remember going into the home of a young couple, Jeff and Heather and their little boy, Kai. Jeff grew up an active member of the church. He was a very talented athlete and had a promising career. He began to drift away from the church in his early teenage years. Later, he got into a car accident, which altered the course of his life. We became, as we entered into the home and became acquainted with, Jeff asked us why we came to see his family. We responded that there were about 3,000 members who live within the state boundaries. I then asked him, Jeff, of all the homes we could have visited tonight, tell us why the Lord has sent us here. Boom. <laughs> what are your comments? I know you're a master of manipulation, not necessarily in performing it, but in how it's performed. What are your thoughts about that question? Oh, this is a brilliant example of religious cold reading. And so, you know, if you Google cold reading, you'll see a bunch of different examples of it. But when you go to a fortune teller or something like that, there's different things that they do in their interactions with you that seem like you're just, you know, interacting normally. But what they're doing is they're extracting information and they're binding you with the idea that they have some sort of special power. And this is a brilliant example of it because he's planting the idea that they're there there for a special reason and then he's asking the individual to search in his own life to come up with whatever that special reason is which we're you know we as humans are pattern seeking people we're going to find some special reason whatever's on his mind and and bring it out and now that instantly becomes the magical divine reason why we were here and it's a miracle it's absolutely a miracle because they'll always find the reason. And of course they're less active and here come the leaders of the church. So why else would God be sending them to see them out of all the, the 3000 members that we could have visited tonight? Why did the mm -hmm. Lord tell us to come here and see you, Jeff? Yeah. And so, by the way, by the way, this is another thing is that the general principle that he starts with about his dad helping the, the poor little ones, right? It segues into the main message, and this is unfortunately always the main message of Mormonism, which is that we don't help people for the sake of helping people. We always help people for the sake of either getting them to join the church or getting them to come back to church. And this is the whole idea. It's out of 3,000 members, right? Out of all the 3,000 members of the church we could have visited tonight. Why did God send us here to you? And in fact, we're going to find out through the story that this visit was successful in the ulterior motive 
I'm not even sure it's that ulterior at this point, uh, <laughs> of getting Jeff and his wife to come back to church. Can you play the tape there? Yeah, let's do it. With that, Jeff became emotional and began to share with us some of his worries and some issues that they were dealing with as a family. We began to share various principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We invited them to do a few specific things that might seem to be challenging at first, but in time would bring great happiness and joy. When President Whit then President Whitworth gave Jeff a priesthood blessing to help him overcome his challenges, Jeff and Heather agreed to do what we invited them to do. Yay! About a year later, it was my privilege to watch Jeff baptize his wife, Heather, yes. a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are now preparing themselves to enter the temple to be sealed as a family for time and all eternity. Our visit altered the course of their lives, both temporally and spiritually. And it had the desired effect. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we're talking about. We, we help people. And you see, this isn't, I'm not trying to be super critical. It's just that I've been a Mormon for over 40 years and I know how it works, right? Yeah. I know that the idea is, is that almost every Mormon and me for 40 years, we look at non-Mormons in a certain way, whether they're friends, whether they're whatever, and they are always prospective members. Yeah. And we present ourselves in such a way as to try and give a good uh, example of the church we try and look for opportunities to talk to them about the church. And if we do something nice for them, it is always with the idea in mind that hopefully we'll be able to capitalize upon that in order to get them to either join the church or come back to the church if they are less active. And I yeah, think people, people in the church during the time you and I were you know, active will recognize the concept of friendshipping. Friendshipping was a concept that was taught, and that word was a very specific verb for finding out what your neighbors were interested in, targeting them multiple times repeatedly with their own interests, attaching that to membership and fellowship within the congregation until such point as they either joined the church or refused any more contact. And it basically made everybody into fake friends because you, you could never actually have an authentic connection with your neighbors because there were always strings attached. And that message pervading the environment of any Mormon anywhere really started to have the effect of people not really trusting Mormons and specifically not trusting their friendship. Kind of like how you wouldn't trust a car salesman who was always approaching you and asking you if it's not time to, you know, maybe upgrade your vehicle or something. You just, or the MLM, anyone who's had to deal with MLM people, it's like you never know if they're actually real friends or if they're just trying to get into your life enough so that they can hit you with the sales pitch. Right. And at this point, I'm not going to go into detail about this experience I had back in October of 2019 on a hiking trail and coming upon this lady who had taken a really bad fall. And ultimately, I think she ended she had broken her wrist and she's bloody. But, you know, I help her out. I mean, I don't just walk by her for crying out loud. Uh, I help her out. We get some help for her. Won't go into detail. But all I want to express to you is that I had the, the distinct impression as I'm helping her this exhilaration that I felt that I could help somebody and not have to give her a book of Mormon when we were done. Yeah. I could help her for the sake of just helping somebody. And it's an incredible <laughs> feeling. Yeah. There was um, a article I'll post it in the comments that uh, I wrote a few years ago 
after finding a pamphlet that specifically talked about this thing of friendshipping. It's called Why Are Mormons So Friendly? So if you're watching, <laughs> feel free to check out that link. It has, uh, you know, a complete breakdown of this thing. But I can really relate to the freedom of suddenly being able to just be a friend, just be a compassionate human for the sake of that alone. And that was like, you know, there are a few little steps on my own journey out of the church. And one of them was letting go of the guilt that I would feel when I didn't want to be every member a missionary because every member a missionary means every member can't have authentic friends. And so I changed, I switched a flip in my mind and I said, I'm not going to push the church on people. I'm not going to push the Book of Mormon on people. I'm just going to be friendly. I'm going to try to let, if I think that the church has been a positive influence in my life, I'm just going to be who I am. And if that makes someone want to know about the church and they approach me, then I'll do it. But otherwise, just the being a good person is good enough in and of itself being friendly, being helpful without strings attached. That's the thing. And I think if the church like really went for that and you can see in their social media campaigns, there's a little bit of that now. But of course, it's always hashtag. I'm so good. Check it out. LDS.org. Um, but and when the church sends out teams to help people who are in need or in distress or there's been some kind of a tragedy or hurricane or whatever, right? You know, next week with a slickly produced video. They want to make sure they're wearing things that show that they're all part of the church, right? Yes. And they're, it's so ironic billboards. because they use the Mormon helping hands when the exact teaching from Christ is like, if your right hand is doing something like you don't need to broadcast the good that you do because then you're getting your reward right there. You know, do the good that you do. And that's why it was so interesting when, you know, early on before the Helping Hands campaign, there was a hurricane in Oklahoma. We drove up there and helped people out. When you looked around, there were all sorts of churches and community organizations helping people out, but you didn't know who did what because everybody was just wearing work gear or something. Fast forward a few years, Mormon Helping Hands comes out. You go out there, you know who the Mormons are because they're all wearing these yellow vests. You look around at all the other churches, you have no idea who's helping out any of these other people because none of them are wearing huge, big yellow vests except for the Scientologists. And and it just kind of brings to mind like Christ's teachings were unique and special for a reason because they went against the conventional wisdom of, you know, if somebody uh, pokes your eye, you poke their eye out. You want to get all the praise for all the good that you do. You want to pray really loudly, like all those things. These are the things that he specifically addressed against. So if you're going to be uniquely Christian, you kind of have to do those unique Christian things. And the church seems every turn it can to just throw those things up in the air and, and get rid of them. And that's why Mormon Jesus is so different from the, the Christ that many people find on their way out of the church. Anyway, that's my two cents on that. Yeah. Well, thank you for those two cents. I think those were worth two bits. That's how good those two cents were. Can we go to the next talk in infuriating unfairness? What an incredible title that Dale Brindlin gives for his talk infuriating unfairness. Um, I, go ahead. I don't know if infuriating is a good apostolic word. <laughs> what was that from? You, that was that from you? the taffy pulling talk from, uh, oh, right. Elder uh from Elder Holland. He's like, I don't know if furious is a good apostolic word, but I'm furious with people who leave this church. Very good. So Elder Renlund should be infuriating in fairness and he can't, he can't resist the alliteration, but what he's going to be talking about here is the, oldest problem of theology, which is the problem of evil. 
Mm. And he's going to he's going to take a crack at it in 15 minutes. He's going to try and resolve the problem of evil in 15 minutes. By the way, it's interesting when I started doing these podcasts and looking at the different talks given by the different people and pulling them up individually. You'll notice that the apostles get 15 minutes for their talks. Everybody else gets 10. Had you noticed that? Oh, I hadn't noticed that, but that seems like a reasonable way to divide things, I guess. Right. So, but this is the technical term for this is a theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. And that is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. In other words, how can we make God look like not a horrible person for allowing evil to exist in the world? If God is all powerful and all loving, then why the hell does all this crap go down? in the world. Yeah. That's the basic idea of the problem of evil. And so he's going to try and solve this in 15 minutes. Uh, to be fair, I want to be fair to him. He's going to say only the beginning. He's not going to say, I'm going to try and solve the whole thing. Okay. But we're just going to start with trying to solve it. And he starts off also to his credit with a very good example. He doesn't give a, a crappy example. I mean, he really goes to a really difficult example, which I believe was the, uh, the mass genocide in Rwanda. That's good. It didn't start out with Marsha lost her keys. How can no. God be good if Marsha lost her keys? The okay. problem is after starting with the, the genocide of Rwanda, he's going to go to examples that are like that. And oh, he won't okay. get very far from there. So he'll give a simplistic explanations for simple problems in these uh, examples he gives. Um, but once he gets to the hard stuff, which is where the problem is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, he throws up his hands and says it's infuriating unfairness because we don't understand it and we can't understand it. There are things you wouldn't understand, Dottie. I won't do that no, again. No. We can't. <laughs> you can but always we... rely on you for a Pee Wee Herman quote. Oh, I'm a loner, Dottie. Okay. We can't... Are we going to get on with this? Yes, we can't understand it. But God will make it okay in the end, sometime, somewhere, over the rainbow. He'll get to it. Trust us. What? What was that? Yu-Gi-Oh! Oh, Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu -Oh, I thought you were playing a clip by example. No. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Oh my gosh. So uh, he'll also tell us that Jesus really feels our pain. Come here. And, and he really wants to help us. But for some reason, he can't seem to be able to do it. He can't bring himself to help us. Of course, that is the crux of the paradox. But Elder Rinlin never explains why that is, i.e. that Jesus really wants to help us, even though he feels our pain. Um, except that in some vague and undescribed way, it will be for our good, the stuff that we go through. And that starts to sound a bit abusive at this point, because if uh, somebody is putting you through pain or allowing you to go through pain, and they're in a parental relationship to you, and then they say, well, it's going to be for your good. Yeah. It starts sounding abusive. That's what I meant by that comment. Now, for okay. some people, this helps to cope with difficulties. I think it's great if it helps them to cope with their difficulties, to think that whatever I'm going through is going to be for my good, and it's really crappy now, but it'll be made better by God in the hereafter. But the bottom line that I see is that there's really no help from God. There's really no power from God, and there's no real anything from God. It's just a way of thinking that it's supposed to make you feel better and able to cope with difficulties in this life. It comes off as an ex. By the way, this is all explanation in advance. I know this is one thing we're going to talk about quite a bit because this is a big can of worms. I'll try and get mm -hmm. through it as briefly as I can. Uh, it comes off as an explanation as to why, for all intents and purposes, it seems like there is no God. See, that's the problem with the problem of evil. 
because it looks like there's no God. So we've got to explain that really there is a God, but how do you account for evil? That's why it's so thorny. But God does exist. He assures us he is all powerful. He really does love you and he really wants to help you. He just won't. And then the question that raises in my mind, well, how is that better than having no God at all? In fact, some could argue that it's actually worse to have a God with power to help who refuses than to have no God at all. So here's where he starts off with a good example of Rwanda. By the way, here's my advice for Elder Rinland. If you're going to talk about something as tra tragic is really the wrong word, as horrible as a genocide, you should probably use something other than your primary voice. Okay, you'll see what I mean. Okay, let's take a look. In 1994, a genocide took place in the East African country of Rwanda that was partly due to deep-seated tribal tensions. Estimates are that more than half a million people were killed. Remarkably, the Rwandan people have in large part reconciled, but these events continued to reverberate. A decade ago, while visiting Rwanda, my wife and I struck up a conversation with another passenger at the Kigali airport. He lamented the unfairness of the genocide and poignantly asked, if there were a God, wouldn't he have done something about it? I'm sorry, I'm just going, that's the question. Yeah. That is absolutely the question. And he goes on. For this man, and for many of us, suffering and brutal unfairness can seem incompatible with the reality of a kind, loving, heavenly father. Yet he is real, he is kind, and he loves each of his children perfectly. This dichotomy is as old as mankind and cannot be explained in a simple soundbite or on a bumper sticker. Okay, so yes, excellent example. Credit to you for bringing it up and not going to something stupid. Unfortunately, now he's going to waste precious time talking about ridiculous examples that end up not really leading anywhere toward resolving the difficulty that he has set himself, which is to address this question about the problem of evil. All right, we'll continue. To begin to make some sense of it, let's explore various types of unfairness. Consider a family in which each child received a weekly monetary allowance for doing common household chores. One son, John, purchased candy. One daughter, Anna, saved her money. Eventually, Anna... I do like the segue from genocide to uh, allowance. It's a better start. Bicycle. John thought it was totally unfair that Anna got a bike when he didn't. But John's choices created the inequality, not parental actions. Anna's decision to forego the immediate gratification of eating candy didn't impose any unfairness on John because he had the same opportunity as his sister. Okay, so what were you saying about this? <laughs> I said the segue from genocide to uh, allowance <laughs> for yeah, chores a bit, is a little bit stark. It's a bit jolting, uh, yeah. but and this in this example, of course, it's, it's so um, different, so, so pedestrian, so non-bad. <laughs> as a genocide that yeah but notice that he gives an example which has nothing to do with the parents right 
Parents are removed from any problem here because they gave allowance equally to both. One saved, one spent. The person who saved buys a bike. The one who spent says, hey, that's not fair because I ate all the candy and spent all my stuff on candy. But what does he mean by this? What he, what he means by this apparently, by this strange parable, which it really has nothing to do with the problem of evil, is that uh, the person, Anna, who buys the bike and saves her money is actually the member of the church who follows all the commandments. And John is the one who does it. And that's yeah. an inequality that ends up happening. And he'll make that clear, I think. Well, not really clear. You have to read it carefully, which I've done to the best of my ability. Uh, play the next paragraph and you'll see that. Okay. Before we do that, though, it, it's clear this is just a modern updated version of the parable of the talents, which, you know, you could go right to Christ and the parable of the talents, or you could come up with your own uh, rinky tink allowance based thing with kids, you know. If you're an apostle, you figure you'd go with Christ. But anyway, here we go. It's like the ant in the grasshopper. Yeah. Our decisions can likewise yield long-term advantages or disadvantages. As the Lord revealed, if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, obedience. he will have so much the advantage in the world to come. When others receive benefits because of their diligent choices, we cannot rightly conclude that we've been treated unfairly when we've had the same opportunity. Okay, so I want to make a couple of comments here. Strangely, this story is only going to compound the difficulty of the subject he is addressing, which is the problem of evil. Because why should somebody be diligent in their choices to obey God when God isn't going to lift a finger to help them with their difficulties or when they are experiencing evil. Yeah. And an important point that came to me kind of late in my preparation is note that this message actually contradicts the message that Elder Holland gave earlier. The only way to solve the worst problems is through strict obedience to the commandments. That's what Elder Holland just got done teaching in this very session. Remember, that is the way to access the powers of heaven. But here, Elder Rinlin is going to talk about why it is that God remains aloof, cold, and distant, even though we do everything we are supposed to do. Now, Elder Rinlin certainly is uh, attacking a problem that is uh, in a more uh, frank way, uh, in a way that tries to deal more with reality. Actually, I think he's what he's doing is he's setting himself the goal of uh, attacking a very difficult problem, but he's taken three pitches over the plate and he's whiffing every one is really what's going on. Um, so, But I want to give him credit for tackling it. So now he's going to give us another. Before we go yeah. to the next one, there yeah. is a, I think there's a subtext going on here because he keeps talking about equality of opportunity and that the differences in the setting of equality of opportunity between the benefits that somebody enjoys has to do with their diligence and obedience, their hard work, their saving. And what he's setting up is a meritocracy paradigm in a religious context that has much broader implications than simply religion. And that is that we're at a moment now where we are having national protests over the issue of inequality. And at the root of a lot of those protests is the idea that we need to examine our society from a systemic level and look at differences that 
are a result of, um, you know, the way that the system is set up. And there's a great deal of conversation and conflict over what those differences exactly are. And there's some people who see those differences as inherent and stemming all the way back from the founding of our country. And there's another perspective that looks at those differences as seeing that there are specific, um, more recent inst uh, policies and laws in our country that have disenfranchised or um, deprived opportunity of certain segments of society. But what he's doing by starting with this is saying that you can look at the successful people and the non-successful people. We live in a land of equal opportunity. And now you have a justification for looking down on those people who are not successful because they were not diligent or obedient enough. And so you can now, you know, start arguing with people and hold a blind eye to the things that people people are calling out as problems in our society by just saying, listen, we're in the land of equal opportunity and you need to just close your eyes to all those things. Um, and I, I will admit, you know, the, the world is much more complex than that. And, and it even goes back to the story of Job in the Bible, like that, the whole the whole thing there is how do we figure out where the people who were diligent and were obedient and yet still have uh, terrible things happen to them, it flies in the face of this exact logic because he's giving the very logic, the prosperity gospel logic, that that story was meant to undo and unwind and explain. Uh, so, you know, it, it's it's really is a kindergarten level theology that he's going to that matches his primary voice. This is not St. Augustine or C.S. Lewis really wrestling with religious concepts uh, and trying to make sense of them. Right. He's using kindergarten reasoning to try and solve a college level problem. Mm -hmm. All right. So we can go on. All right. Unless there's something you want to respond no, to no, on no. that. No. All right. This is his second example. Another of example of unfairness stems from a situation my wife Ruth encountered as a child. One day, Ruth learned that her mother was taking a younger sister, Merla, to buy new shoes. Ruth complained, Mom, it's so unfair. Merla got the last new pair of shoes. Ruth's mother asked, Ruth, do your shoes fit? Ruth replied, well, yes. Ruth's mother then said, Merla's shoes no longer fit. Mm -hmm. Ruth agreed that every child in the family should have shoes that fit. Although Ruth would have liked new shoes, her perception of being treated unfairly dissipated when she saw the circumstances through her mother's eyes. Okay, so there's a second example. Now, the point of the story is that sometimes we think we are being treated unfairly when actually we are not. The unfairness is in the perception rather than in the reality of the situation. And I think there's a certain amount of, uh, I don't know, value in understanding that. Um, also, sometimes we need to put our problems in perspective when compared to the problems of somebody else. But again, in the context of what he's addressing, I see this as a dodge because it comes from a position of limited resources. We can understand that within a family, he's got a bunch of kids. I mean, it's a good Mormon family, right? As Elder Neil Anderson will tell us later, we got to have kids like hell isn't having any. And so they got to have shoes and we only have so much money. So we can only buy so many shoes for so many kids at a time. Merla doesn't have shoes that fit. So she needs the one who needs the shoes. But like I say, that's a position of limited resources. God's resources are not supposed to be limited. 
God can give new shoes to everybody at the same time. He isn't a being who can give only one pair of shoes at a time because he's strapped for cash. Also, changing our perception may be helpful psychologically, but it doesn't really change anything in reality. I mean, in other words, our troubles persist even if somebody else has it worse. And I've, had, I've been in bad positions and I've thought of other people who had it worse and it made me feel better for a little while. It's like the old saying that I learned from Paul H. Dunn, by the way. I had the blues because I had no shoes until upon the street, I saw a man who had no feet. Hmm. So recognizing others have it worse can help us mentally for a time, but it does nothing to put shoes on our feet, right? To summarize, the problem of evil persists even if other people have it worse than we do. It doesn't really connect or help solve that problem. But now that Elder Rillen has given some simple, and some people might think insipid, examples, he's going to now, now that he actually gets to the problem <laughs> that he set himself to address, he's going to immediately throw up his hands and uh, he's going to surrender at anything more difficult because he just doesn't have the ability to solve this problem. It makes you wonder why I brought it up in the first place. Did you have anything you want to say before I play the next quote? Uh, no, I think we should keep move on. Let's so right going. after these two simple examples, this is what he says. Some unfairness cannot be explained. Inexplicable unfairness is infuriating. Unfairness comes from living with bodies that are imperfect, injured, or diseased. Mortal life is inherently unfair. Some people are born in affluence, others are not. Some have loving parents, others do not. Some live many years, others few. And on, and on, and on. Some individuals make injurious mistakes even when they're trying to do good. Some choose not to alleviate unfairness when they could. Distressingly, some individuals use their God-given agency to hurt others when they never should. Right. So he's done a really good job, once again, of listing all the ways in which life is unfair, in which you would think that if God loves us and has absolute power, he would be able to help us. But he starts this paragraph with his ultimate conclusion. He says, why is life so unfair sometimes? And then his conclusion is some unfairness cannot be explained. So that's where he throws up his hands. Maybe it's a good thing that he doesn't try to explain it because I think that this problem has resisted the efforts of the best theologians for the past 2000 plus years to actually solve the dilemma. And they've tried to do it in much more than just 15 minutes. Well, this is actually something that early Mormon theology actually addressed very, very directly and uniquely. Mm -hmm. And it was through the lens of the pre-mortal existence because people looked around and they said, you know, some people are born in third world countries. Some people are born in affluence. How do we make sense of all this? If God is a just God, then how do you explain the disparity in people's living environments? And the early church leaders said, simple, we had a pre-mortal existence. There was a battle, a fight. And if you were one of the noble ones, as referenced in 
in the pearl of great price, the great and noble spirits, then when you were born into the earth, there was a pre, there was a judgment at that point. And that judgment was based on your pre-mortal actions. If you were good, you went into a nice Mormon home or you were born into an affluent first world country. And if you were less valiant, then you went into other countries, but you wanted to because the goal of getting a physical body was so desirable that you were willing to be born into an inconvenienced or handicapped body, whether it was that you were in a third world country or you were handicapped in some way physically, um, all of those things then made sense. Now God is a just God. Now the people who are affluent can look at the people who aren't and saying, well, they kind of got what they deserve because of that judgment between the pre-mortal life and this life. And it was a way to really rob people of the ability to be compassionate. And that was a very damaging theology because it informed and fueled the racism because going along with that explanation at that time in the early 1900s was uh, the fence sitters were so uh, you know, they, they had to be born in bodies, uh, coming from people descended from black Africans. And so the fact that they can't enter into the temple, they can't get the blessings of an eternal family. They can't hold the priesthood. That is God's justice because they were less valiant in the pre-mortal life. And so it all makes theological sense. That's where they came from. And so if you were listening to General Conference, rewind back to early 1900s, they could have said, you know, some fairness seems to be unable to be explained and then list all these things and then say, but there's a good reason for it. Here's the reason. And there is a quote like that from, I think it's Joseph F. Smith or Joseph Fielding Smith, where he explains some people are born to other nationalities and it's because of their pre-mortal behavior. But now we've lost, we've, we're blind to the fact that the prophets of old, those prophets who speak God's truth, used to give an explanation, used to give a reason. Now we, I don't know why it's so infuriating. <laughs> it's so infuriating. Yeah. And that's why I used to say, and still do actually, that the good thing about a belief in a pre-mortal existence is it explains why people are born with advantages and disadvantages in this life. The bad thing about belief in a pre-mortal existence is it explains why people are born with advantages and disadvantages in this life. But you're right. This is the thing that is remarkably missing from this talk. There is no mention of the pre-mortal existence as an explanation for unfairness in this life. And yes, it used to be talked about all the time, even in my time period in the church. And I don't know if I heard it in general conference or if I read it in Joseph Fielding Smith's Doctrine of Salvations, like you talked about. But yeah, it was definitely there. And on a surface level, it was it was uh, very helpful, right? Especially since I'm one of the white guys who joined in the Mormon church. So I'm at the top of that hierarchy from the pre-mortal existence. I was probably one of the generals in the army. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, that, that absolutely. Well, you know, that's an explanation for nepotism is that the great and noble ones clustered in families. And so it should not be a surprise that the son-in-law of Spencer W. Kimball is a uh, general authority uh, because he was, you know, closely knit to the great and noble spirits in the pre-mortal existence. Oh, okay. Very good. Very good. Yes. Uh, I think, though, that uh, he avoids it intentionally. I think this is being de-emphasized. I don't know that we talk about that. I don't know that we emphasize it anymore, this connection between the pre-mortal existence and the states in which we are born. Uh, there's an example that I found, um, which was about Harold B. Lee. Uh, you remember 
some time ago when he was still um, around and a leader in the church that he talked about having not only uh, race, but also handicaps, mortal bodies with physical limitations being the product of some sort of malfeasance in the pre-mortal existence. And this is from his Decisions of Successful Living, pages 164 through 65. The privilege of obtaining, this is him. This is Harold B. Lee writing. The privilege of obtaining a mortal body on this earth is seemingly so priceless that those in the spirit world, even though unfaithful or not valiant, were undoubtedly permitted to take mortal bodies, although under penalty of racial or physical or nationalistic limitations. And that's the exact kind of statement that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, I do note that in the handbook from handbook two, which is now obsolete apparently, because they got rid of this. This was from handbook two, uh, 21.1.26.2. That's the reference. By the way, this is not a legalistic religion. (laughs) <laughs> so it was handbook number two, 21.1.26.2. Sounds like Barney Fife in the old Andy Griffin show. Yeah. Leaders and members, this is what it said. Leaders and members should not attempt to explain why the challenge of a disability has come to a family. So obviously when they wrote this, they are now parting company with Harold B. Lee and what he had said in decades past. He did say, that a challenge of a disability has come to a family and attempted to explain it. Now the handbook, or at least just a few years ago, the handbook said that leaders should not attempt to explain why the challenge of a disability has come to a family. They should never suggest that a disability is a punishment from God. Yeah. Nor should they suggest that it is a blessing to have a child who has a disability. Because it went from penalty with uh, Harold B. Lee to a blessing with subsequent leaders and now they're just saying, ah, we just need to leave that whole thing alone. And not yeah, because when you say it's a blessing, that still ties performance, uh, the character of your spirit in the pre-mortal world to your reward now. Right. And it's also, well, I think we all know what it is to say if something horrible happens in your life and, you know, yeah. oh, but it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Yeah. Oh, my Lord, really? But now they've gone from penalty to blessing to we're not going to talk about that. And I think that Elder Renlund's talk reflects that new policy that we're not going to make any connection. This is another example. This is the one from Joseph Fielding Smith. There's a reason why one man is born black with other disadvantages while another born white with great advantages. The reason is that we once had an estate before we came here and we were obedient more or less to the laws given us there. And those who were faithful in all things there received greater blessings here. And those who were not faithful received less. Yes. Yes. All right. <clears throat> and you and you found that on the fly, by the way. I just want everybody to know. <laughs> by the way, why are you black and white and I'm in color here? You look like Dorothy Gale before the cyclone. Well, I just, that needs to be before, you know, I'm in doubt, outer darkness and you're in, in technicolor. I'm in Oz, baby. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh. By the way, I've just realized, just so you know, Jonathan, I'm looking mm-hmm. at the clock. It's 8.14 where I live, which means we've got 45 minutes. I have relieved myself of all responsibility for trying to get through all the talks. Okay. okay. So we're going right. to definitely get through his and because there's some wonderful stuff, especially when we get to one particular word that starts with an M. And I think you know what that word is. Mm. And because uh, we're going to want to talk about that too and have a lot of fun with it. But um, so we talked about all this stuff. Now, can you continue? I think it's just continuing to play his talk. I had made all these notes in, in between. Okay. Um, so I, I posted a link. There's a, a, a 
paper, an article I wrote a few years ago called The First Estate, The Mormon Ring of Power that dives deep into the origin of this concept of the premortal existent providing justification for everything. And it has all of the links in context and you can uh, you can go find it there. So let's move on then. Should we just continue on his um, uh, theodicy? You, theodicy? sir, are a gentleman and a scholar. And yes, let's continue. All right. Different types of unfairness can merge, creating a tsunami of overwhelming unfairness. For instance, the COVID-19 pandemic disproportionately affects those who already are subject to multifactorial underlying disadvantages. My heart aches for those who face such unfairness. But I declare with all my aching heart that Jesus Christ both understands unfairness and has the power to provide a remedy. Boom. That's the problem. That's the problem. I declare with all my aching heart that Jesus Christ understands unfairness and has the power to provide a remedy. Okay, so why doesn't he? Which you can obtain for yourself for the low, low price of 10% of your income for the rest of your life. <laughs> Three payments of $19.99 a month. No, absolutely. That's the problem. I declare it with all my aching heart. Well, I don't care if you declare it with all your heart, if it's aching. The problem is, is that if you're going to say that Jesus Christ understands unfairness and has the power to provide a remedy, what the hell is he waiting for? And that's the problem of evil, right? Like yeah. I say, he does a really good job of setting it up, but not so good in answering it. So now if you go to down to timestamp, by the way, I'm not trying to run over you. Do you have anything you wanted to say about that? No, problem? I mean, I, I think that the, the message that empowers people from the Christian perspective is this idea that you have direct access to God. God can come into your heart and give you inspiration and strength in the face of unfairness in the face of uh chaos in the face of uh you know the the worst things that could happen to you and it it just that that should be kind of the message that they're going for but they always tie it to participation and obedience in the church that then puts you on that cycle of inadequacy and they he just kind of handles the empowering aspects of christian tradition very clumsily um, there is this thing too with where you're talking about the way of looking at things can alter your perspective and help you cope with things more. And there very much is this bootstrap American, you know, do things yourself. Don't look for problems in the world around you. Look inside for what you can do to improve your situation. And there are two sides to that coin. Number one, it can be empowering. If you find yourself in the midst of a lot of difficulties, having that perspective immediately gives you a proactive way to wrestle with your difficulties and find a way out. But when you throw that in the face of people who are struggle with that very thing, and you use that now as a bludgeon to put people down, well, you should be lifting yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's an extreme that you can take that to that actually is somewhat abusive. And it, and it betrays the Christian principle of looking out for the people who are hard off. And so, um, I don't know that they play the balance the right way there, but that's just the tension that I see in my mind when I think about these things, just for me personally. Okay, and this next timestamp, which is 5.54, he's going to go to the tried and true default position of things may suck here, and we may not have any explanation for why it sucks here. 
And God's apparently, though he loves us and could help us out, is still going to let us have things suck here. Eventually, God's going to get off his royal arse and he's going to help us, but it'll be long after we're dead. He'll make everything okay in the future. He's not going to do it now, but he, but we can trust that he'll do it in the future, even though he's not going to do it now. So this is this part now of his talk. Okay. Because Jesus Christ endured the infinite atoning sacrifice, he empathizes perfectly with us. He's always aware of us and our circumstances. He just won't do anything about it. In mortality, we can come boldly to the Savior and receive compassion, healing, and help. Except not really. Even while we suffer inexplicably, God can bless us in simple, ordinary, and significant ways. As we learn to recognize these blessings, our trust in God will increase. In the eternities, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ will resolve all unfairness. We understandably want to know how and when. How are they going to do that? When are they going to do it? To my knowledge, they haven't revealed how or when. What I do know is that they will. Okay, your thoughts about that, Jonathan? Well, I think that's the the brilliant segue into the Exorcist three. I, I don't. I, I would only repeat that, um, regardless of whether or not you believe in God or believe in Christ, the way that religions use the way that Christian religions or some Christian religions use the concept of a caring father, who at the same time wants you to succeed, wants you to be empowered. Um, that message can be used to bring you out of despair. And, you know, if you are completely overwhelmed with depression and despair, then you, you, you're disempowered helping yourself. But if the message of a caring and loving heavenly father saves you from that depth of despair, such that you can now start to bring yourself out of the hole and, and bringing yourself out of the hole could be as much as he's saying that it's up to you to look around you and find the blessings that God has given you. Find those glimmers of hope, find those hopeful things in your world, grab onto them and build up from there. And that is whether it's done in religious words or whether it's done in, you know, psychological words where your therapist is trying to use cognitive behavioral therapy to have you not catastrophize things, to keep things in perspective, to find goodness and to pursue those things, because there is this cycle of depression and helplessness that happens if you only dwell on negativity and it requires a directed effort to suppress that mental trap and move on to being able to find some positivity and build from it. This is a religious way to frame that process, which does have a utility. It does have some helpfulness to it. Um, whether you find it from cognitive behavioral therapy or from a religious paradigm. So I think there's some positive aspects to this. Right. Well, when I think of the uh, problem of evil, I immediately think of the movie Exorcist Three. And the reason for that is because this is the actual sequel to The Exorcist. The Exorcist 2 is a piece of schlock. It should be forgotten. I think it mostly okay. has been. But Exorcist 3 is actually Exorcist 2. It's actually the sequel. It's actually the movie that's based upon the novel but was written as the sequel to The Exorcist. Anyway, um, Lee J. Cobb is not available anymore to reprise the role of, um, was it Lieutenant Kinderman, I think it is, mm. uh, because he passed away. And so they get George C. Scott to play the detective. 
And here, George C. Scott is talking with his dearest friend, who's also a Catholic priest. I think it's Father Dyer. And they're sitting at a, a little pub or something like that. And they're talking about religion from different points of view. And of course, obviously, the Catholic is talking about it from the religious point of view, where he makes a lot of the same points that um, uh, Elder Renland has just been, been making, including, you know, he'll set everything right at the end of time. Uh, but George C. Scott is not exactly uh, buying it. And so if you'll play this, I think it's really, oh, by the way, there's two cultural references in here that I have to bring up. First off, uh, the name uh, Phil Rizzuto is mentioned. Do you know who Phil Rizzuto is? No. Okay, he was a shortstop for the Yankees. Okay. He's very famous. So Phil Rizzuto's name gets mentioned, just a cultural reference. And the other one is Billy Burke, which is a name that gets mentioned. And Billy Burke was once very famous, is still now a little bit famous, but she's most famous. It's a a woman, first off. It's not a guy named Billy. It's Billy Burke, a woman, female actress, most famous for playing Glinda, the Good Witch of the North, in The Wizard of Oz. So those two... uh, references are made it's helpful to know who they're talking about to understand the point that's being made so here we go with this wonderful scene it's only about a minute and three sec or minute nine seconds long from a great movie with a great actor let's do it yes the gemini's dead well that's not it we all know that but that's not it my friend stories in the hey that's not it oh that was the link you sent me oh i know but I said that to you this morning just so you could see it. That great actor is so fantastic. But that's not the that's link. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'll, I love I got this. I love this thing, but it doesn't have anything to do with the problem. I got you. Yet. Here you go. Okay. That's the one. <laughs> okay. Thanks for correcting me on that. Okay, here we go. The whole world is a homicide victim, Father. Would a God who is good invent something like that plainly speaking it's a lousy idea it's not popular father it's not a winner there you go blaming god who should i blame phil Rizzuto? you wouldn't want to live forever yes i would no you wouldn't you get bored i have hobbies in the meantime we have cancer and mongoloid babies and murderers monsters prowling the planet even prowling this neighborhood father right now while our children suffer and our loved ones die, and your God goes waltzing blithely through the universe like some kind of cosmic Billy Burke. Bill, it all works out right. When? At the end of time. That's soon. No, we're going to be there. We're going to live forever, Bill. We're spirits. Oh, I would love to believe that. It's that kid that got killed on the dock, isn't it? I heard it on the news. You want to talk about it? That's good. All right. It goes more into the plot of the the movie, which I encourage everybody to watch. But yeah, that wonderful scene there, wonderfully acted, talks about the problem of evil. And here's the the problem being enunciated. Here are the standard uh, religious responses. And then the obvious responses from the person who's not a believer. Mm -hmm. How I would love to believe that. Okay. Mm -hmm. But obviously, George C. Scott is having trouble believing it because if what's happening right now in the movie and the things that he sees and knows exist are happening now and God's not helping, what basis should he have to believe that God is going to change his tune and suddenly start helping sometime down the road after everybody's dead? Yeah. So 
I'm so glad we got that clip in there. I love having movie clips. and I love I that you can put it up there and eventually the right one too. Yeah. Hey, there we go. Good job. Thank you. So um, if you go to timestamp 746, mm-hmm. okay, he's going to reiterate this final. Um, it's, it's the last stitch. It's always what it comes to. It's at the end of time. He's going to help us at some point, but we don't know when. We don't know where. We don't know how. As far as I know, Revelation hasn't answered that question. You know, how many times do we have to have our apostles, our prophets, seers, and revelators tell us what they don't know? Yeah. Well, Revelation hasn't answered that question. What they mean is it's not in the scriptures. Well, why do we have prophets on the face of the earth who are supposed to have direct communication with God if they are limited by what's written in the scriptures the same way as everybody else is? They don't seem. I mean, the thing is that time and time again, you get an inkling that really they don't have any special connection with God. And this is one of those points where he says what um, we played before. But he'll say it again here in timestamp 746. We've got to hold those questions about how and when. And in the meantime, we just focus on being a good Mormon and doing what we're supposed to do, right? Here it is. All right. We can try to hold our questions about how and when for later and focus on developing faith in Jesus Christ, that he has both the power to make everything right and yearns to do so. He just can't do it. For us to insist on knowing how or when is unproductive. And after all, myopic. Myopic. He said the word. I'm so excited. Do you know why I'm so excited he said the word? Because he's virtue signaling to the good Dr. Russell uh, M. Nelson that he paid attention during the October 2020 conference, where in an act of prophetic compassion uh, in... (laughs) in one of his grandchildren's lives or whatever she was struggling she was struggling with her husband who was was having difficulties with his testimony or something or with the death of a child i forget what it was and he's like well that's myopic yeah thank you exactly and even footnotes in the printed version on the church website that's footnote 15 click it boom it goes right to president nelson's talk where he used that word myopic should we listen to it oh we're going to and it's now very very famous um uh, talk. Uh, it takes six months to become famous in this business. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, oh, it's right here. Let God prevail. Let God prevail. <laughs> Let God prevail. Right. So he he tells his talk. He tells his talk. He tells a story in that talk from last general conference, October of 2020. Mm-hmm. And it is the strangest talk. It's the strangest story in the world because uh, it connotes a very unusual family dynamic. And so if we can just go ahead and play that, We're, this is now from last general conference at time, it's timestamp 551 in Let God Prevail. And here's the story as President Nelson tells it, and it's what uh, Elder Renlund is referring to here. Not long ago, the wife of one of our grandsons was struggling spiritually. I will call her Jill. Despite fasting, prayer, and priesthood blessings, Jill's father was dying. She was gripped with fear that she would lose both her dad and her testimony. Late one evening, my wife, Sister Wendy Nelson, told me of Jill's situation. The next morning, Wendy felt impressed to share with Jill that my response to her spiritual wrestle was one word. The word was 
myopic. Well, that's compassionate. Oh, there's so much wrong with that. Did you? Did we go over this last time? I don't we remember. We didn't. It. We were going to, and we never got to. That's why I was so excited that Elder Rinland used the word myopic in his talk, so we could thereby use that to go back and talk about this story that we have not addressed before. Okay, so first of all, what does myopic mean? Well, that's a good question because I think that when Jill heard that, she said that was her first her first impression was what What does that mean? Is that a diagnosis? Does my grandfather have myopia? Let me look it up. He's a doctor. <laughs> no, it means nearsightedness. You know that. Well, no, it's not even nearsightedness. It's 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 closed. It's like tunnel vision. It, it, it's like what? you know you're you're not looking at the whole picture. No, my, myopic. That just means nearsighted, doesn't it? Okay, fine. Whatever. Did you already look it up? Did you look it up? No, I'll look it up here. The definition of myopia is nearsightedness. Thank you. But it also means lack of imagination, foresight, or intellectual insight. And that's well, I know. what he was talking about. That's how it's referred. Yeah, but that's why I'm Okay, so I think I'm you're right. Good. I'm, okay, you're I think right. I was proving you're to be right. correct on that. Thank you. You were. You can't say it enough. All right, now. Uh, <laughs> so he says, myopia. can you play just the next part of this? Because let me see if there's, um. yeah, because right, just the it. next paragraph. Jill later admitted to Wendy that initially she was devastated by my response. She said, I was hoping for grandfather to promise me a miracle for my dad. I kept wondering why the word myopic was the one he felt compelled to say. Oh, go ahead and play a little bit more, please. After Jill's father passed on, the word myopic kept coming to her mind. She opened her heart to understand even more deeply that myopic meant nearsighted. And her thinking began to shift. Jill then said, quote, myopic caused me to stop, think, and heal. That word now fills me with peace. That's probably enough. Because now yeah. she understands, you know, that this is extremely wise. And yeah, he's a prophet of God and everything is hunky-dory. But, but, by the way, can I just mention something before we get to the myopic part? Okay. Which he even defines here as nearsighted. That's probably how I knew because it was in the talk for crying out loud. <laughs> we just hadn't gotten to that part yet. Um, but, uh, no, uh, you notice, uh, once again, uh, despite fasting, prayer, and priesthood blessings, Jonathan, Jill's mm. father was dying. This is another entry in the General Conference Death March, yeah. where hundreds and thousands of people are joining, apparently. But he even says it, in spite of the priesthood blessings, Jill's father was dying. And maybe, just maybe, the blessings and him dying have something to do with Jill having a little trouble with her testimony. So if I can break this down here, because this is the thing that just cracks up, it doesn't crack me up. Okay, it cracks me up. But I think it's very, very interesting is that if you dissect this story and look at the family relationships, okay, we're talking about President Nelson's grandson, right? And his wife, who's Jill. The grandson's wife is Jill. And it's Jill's dad who is dying in spite of priesthood blessings. Now, the first thing we have to understand is this isn't Wendy's uh, granddaughter. I'll just call her a granddaughter, even though it's a granddaughter by marriage. Okay. It's right. not Wendy's granddaughter. How do Wendy we know doesn't that? have children? 
Wendy has no children. Right. Right. She has no children. So it can't be her granddaughter. This is President Nelson's granddaughter from his previous wife through that mm -hmm. line. Anyway. And yet when the granddaughter's having trouble, who does she reach out to? Not, not grandpa. <laughs> no, she doesn't talk to grandpa at all. She's not going to go to grandpa. I don't know why, but the story is clear. She doesn't go to grandpa. She goes to Wendy and she tells Wendy about this problem. Wendy is the, she is the funnel through which the communication between president Nelson and his granddaughter occurs. So granddaughter talks to Wendy says, you know, I'm having trouble. My, my uh, dad's dying. And he, um, in spite of the priesthood blessings and I'm having trouble with my testimony. And so she goes to Wendy, Wendy now talks to, uh, her husband, President Nelson, one evening, I guess, I don't know if he's reading the paper or watching something on TV, he appears to be distracted. He can only give a one word response. He's probably working on a conference talk. I don't know what he's doing. But she says, your granddaughter, honey, honey, your granddaughter's having trouble. Uh, her, her dad is dying. She's losing her testimony. And all that, uh, I don't even know if he looks up from the newspaper that he's reading. And all he says is myopic. Yeah. That's all he says. Myopic. And I don't know what Wendy thinks, but uh, we might think that he would jump out of his chair or get on the phone or drive over and see his granddaughter. I don't know where she lives, but get in touch with her and talk to her and maybe run down to the hospital or hospice or wherever and give this father of the granddaughter a priesthood blessing that would actually work. He is the prophet of the Lord, right? But well, no, I'm pretty sure... In the, in the New Testament, when people came to Christ with their problems, he like looked at that and he said, oh, uh, you individual lacking in foresight and intellectual insight, you're so myopic. And that, yeah. that was the healing words of Christ. At that, okay, no, it's not. It's not, <laughs> is it? And so he doesn't do any of that stuff. But, you know, it seems like as members of the church, we are so, we are so accustomed to the miraculous not happening to the heroic not occurring. Mm -hmm. And all he's going to say is myopic. And I think it struck everybody a little bit weird when he said that. Obviously, it's oh, yeah. his granddaughter is weird. But he doesn't even tell it to his granddaughter. No, he just <laughs> reading the newspapers is myopic. Hmm. And then Wendy's that. the one who tells it to the granddaughter. Right. You know, and the granddaughter is justifiably aghast. What? Yes. What? I went with my my heart bleeding and he told me myopic and now we fall into the, the pattern, which is that when when things don't work out, when things aren't working and, and you don't get what you expect, then you have to turn into yourself, find what you did wrong, find how your thinking is wrong. That's the problem. And not only that, but we have these men are the mouthpiece of God. And so when they say something, there is a gem of wisdom in it, no matter how abusive, no matter how short-sighted and intellectually defunct, no matter how dispassionate, how uncompassionate and, you know, cold and detached those things are, they are still the words of God. Because remember, from, we learned from uh, President Oaks that, you know, whatever, when you're acting as the Lord's servant, whatever pops into your brain, that's the word of God. You're acting as the word of God. And so, you know, you've got to accept it as the word of God. And so that's why, like, rather than, like, if, if somebody else asked this question and then an old grandfatherly person said myopic, you'd be like, well, you're just like a grumpy old guy and you're, you know, that, that type of advice is the load of poopykins. Somebody uh, might think, 
Somebody might think, what a dick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you're not allowed to say that because he's the prophet. So instead, your father dies, your husband's dealing with his testimony issues, and you're struggling. And you're like, oh, the, the problem is me. The problem is me. He finally figured it out, too. First, she's devastated. He says, she was devastated. That's his talk. When Not I, but Wendy told her what I said about myopic. She was devastated. And I know it's not... Uh, He's the prophet, so maybe we should say our beloved dick. Would that make it better? <laughs> Probably. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to go any further down that road, even though, you know. Okay. So, um, uh, but yeah, and there are stories out there that I've heard. You know, there's the, the PR, uh, President Nelson, where he's lovely, he's wonderful, he's gentle, he's kind. He likes Santa Claus at Christmas with goodies for all the kids. And that's yeah. the way he always is. But then there's these other stories about when he was a surgeon and how he was extremely uh, short, unkind, brusque, rude, blah, 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 which is totally, you know, understandable of a surgeon. Right. Uh, that, that's the so. stereotype of the surgeon. And that's yeah. the, you know, I need to cut, the, cut through all the crap and get to what's being done. And, and I have the experience. It's my experience that's going to heal people on the operating table. And there is... You know, there's a need for some degree of assurance and because they're dealing with life and death, they have to be able to be very direct and people have to respect their authority in that regard. But at the same time, if you're on a team, which every surgeon is, other people are going to have eyes on things that you may not have. And you have to be able to listen to other people. And it's not just my word or the highway. But um, that is bleeding into his religious paradigm. Yes. And I all the only reason I'm bringing up the stories is not to say that they're true, because I don't know. I wasn't in the operating room, and if I was, I was under anesthetic. But he says in the story, that aspect of him appears to come out. of mm -hmm. uh, This rudeness, this uncaring, this unsympathetic nature. Uh, and he's telling the story on himself. So apparently he <laughs> thinks it's, it's positive. He thinks, I'm really wise here, and she didn't get it at first, but eventually she did. So when he's rude and brusque to his granddaughter, not even talking to her, but talking to his wife, yeah. um, he thinks that's a good thing. But I think it's showing this other aspect of his character that other people have talked about. And it shows how tone deaf and out of touch he is. It's kind of like if, you you know, the classic abusive spouse is you put look at your spouse and you say, you know, you're nothing without me. I'm the only thing that keeps you afloat. You, you try to survive on your own and you couldn't make it. And then you talk to the battered spouse who usually is very compassionate and empathetic and takes in messages like that and tries to find problems within themselves. And so they ruminate that and they're like, gosh, I, I, I guess I would be, you know, really hard off all on my own. And then they come back and say, you know, you're right. Thank you for taking care of me and all these things that's the, like the the uh, abusive spouse and codependent person paradigm and now the abusive spouse seems to say see that's right i told you you would you know you wouldn't survive on your own and then he goes and brags about his wisdom i told that girl she couldn't be on her own and you know and it's so his bragging now proof of his inspiration and wisdom in the one word answer of myopic you know, that's his one word sermon that healed the balm of his granddaughter's heart. And he thinks that that was a good message. And so now you've got all these stake presidents and fathers who, you know, their family members are going to come to them in the, the depth of despair, of a crisis of faith, of personal tragedy. And they're just going to say, well, that's really myopic of you to complain or to have problems with that. That's just really myopic. And, you know, right. how is that going to help people's relationships? It's almost like saying I can solve the problem of evil in one word. Myopic. Myopic. Yeah. It's a beautiful word.
Okay, so if we go to timestamp 1014, there is something positive. This is back to Elder Renlund's talk. Elder Renlund's talk, he actually says something I think that's positive here. And it's in the context of an attorney, by the way. The attorney is the hero of the story, I noted. And uh, But it has to do with this whole story about him representing some guy who's unjustly accused of murder. Uh, that's supposed to be taken as a, as a given here in the story. And he wants people from this guy's uh, congregation, Christian congregation, obviously not a Mormon congregation. He makes that clear as well, who don't like this guy because he had committed some kind of extramarital affair. Right. So they mm -hmm. don't like him. Apparently, the fact he's charged with murder and eh, that's no big deal. But he was sleeping around. So we're not going to stand up for him. That just came to me while I was talking. Um, but so he goes and he talks to them and he tries to get them to come forward and help out. It is not clear at all why he needs the members of the congregation to help out with defending this guy against a murder charge. And I'm not sure I understand what that is, actually. But that's not important for the story. What's that didn't go for, well with the Ted, Ted Bundy thing. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> What's important for the story is about uh, this a lawyer goes and he, and he preaches to uh, this Christian congregation, tells them about the woman taken in adultery and how everybody want to throw stones at her. And... We shouldn't be throwing stones, but it, but the nice part of this, okay, the nice part of this is that he goes beyond that, and he says, not only should we not throw stones, we need to catch the stones that other people are throwing, and so that's just this brief little part here, timestamp ten fourteen. Do you have that? Yeah, brothers and sisters, not throwing stones is the first step in treating others with compassion. The second step is to try to catch stones thrown by others. There you go. How so that is a good idea. I, I think, what do, you, what do you think about that, Jonathan? No, I agree. I Of all of the memes that could be made of this entire general conference, the concept of being a stone catcher, catcher is actually a unique and beautiful meme. And that, I mean, you could just have this one story absent the, what precedes it and what probably follows it. And that would probably have been a more uplifting and good general conference than most. I think the one that's getting a lot of play, though, was Joy Jones' statement that we talked about last week. Eternity is the wrong thing to be wrong yeah. about. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. By the way, I, I do appreciate that. When he says the second step is to try to catch stones thrown by others, I think of stones being thrown by others. And I think, would lazy learners qualify as a stone being thrown by somebody? Well, the unrighteous take the truth to be hard. So if you if you think the stone thrown at you by lazy learners was hard, then it defines you as the unrighteous. And well, so you need to be hit over the head with that stone. Well, stones are by their nature somewhat hard. Have you ever been hit on the head with a soft rock? Okay. <laughs> and if the stone fits, wear it, I guess. Yeah. But no, we're supposed to catch those stones. So I like that. Now... Here we go to timestamp 1126. He's going to be concluding his talk. And I will tell you up front, I have some questions about whether this really happened exactly the way it's being described. Because he's going to go back right to this guy. They're at the airport. They're at the mm. airport in Kigali, which I'm assuming is R Rwanda uh, or somewhere in Africa. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't know where Kigali is exactly. But this fellow passenger who's not a member, who's talking about his family being killed in this civil war, right? Yeah. or uh, civil war, uh, genocide, genocide, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, uh, and then 
they talk about things and there's a very positive reaction that ends up happening. So do you have that 1126? Yeah. Let's do it. I return to the question posed by our fellow passenger in Kigali when he lamented the unfairness of the Rwandan genocide and asked, if there were a God, wouldn't he have done something about it? Without minimizing the suffering caused by the genocide, and after acknowledging our inability to comprehend such suffering, we replied that Jesus Christ has done something about infuriating unfairness. We explained many gospel precepts concerning Jesus Christ and the restoration of His Church. Afterwards, our acquaintance asked, with tears in his eyes, You mean there's something I can do for my dead parents and uncle? We said, Oh, yes. We then testified that all that's unfair about life can be made right through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, and that by His authority, families can be joined together forever. There it is. There it is. Yes, yes, there is something that can be done to relieve the suffering of the murdered parents, this guy's murdered uncle. It isn't to help them in this life back when they were being murdered, but now that they are dead, now that they are dead and murdered, they can be baptized into the Mormon church. Hooray! That's what can be done. That's what God has provided for them to be done, to alleviate the suffering, to make everything right, and to solve the problem of evil, apparently. There's a desperate irony here is that the church got in trouble for baptizing the victims of genocide for the dead before. Oh, you're right. Because the church was was baptizing the Holocaust uh, victims of the Holocaust. Over and over again. Yep. They get caught. I hope everybody knows this. I think you probably do if you're watching this program. But, you know, the church is trying to baptize everybody and their dog throughout the entire world that's ever lived. So they're going over and they're baptizing Holocaust victims and this Jewish organization finds out about it and they say, hey, we don't want you baptizing the Holocaust victims into the Mormon <laughs> church. And it kind of was a PR nightmare. So the Mormon yeah. church publicly says, okay, sorry, we understand. Probably not in the best taste. We are not going to do that. And then they keep doing it. <laughs> it comes yeah, to and public attention again. And they <laughs> said, it's like the, the manifestos, right? The first yeah. manifesto, we're going to stop practicing plural marriage. And then they get caught doing it and they say, okay, second manifesto. This time we really mean it. Yeah. We're not going to do that. And so, but yes, that was uh, genocide victims, uh, Holocaust victims. And here, yeah, they're doing the same kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. Well, it can, it's comforting. But it's kind of like, it's just the whole story of any... Uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you could even look at Heaven's Gate, you know, it's like they were going to evolve to the plane beyond human existence beyond human. And that was the beautiful, glorious future, which then justified their act of mass suicide now. So any religion can promise some glorious future and it's going to give you the warm and fuzzies or the niceness about now, because like that's the whole point. The way they do that is, you know, we'll find out when we're dead. Oh, that soon. And um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a great line, with it? That's that's the leverage that that any of any religious charlatan can do. It's like as soon as your religion is telling you to, um, you know, bow the knee to them now, pay the money to them now, and you'll get those blessings in the future. 
that's kind of a red flag that you need to have. Now, there's religious messages, not so much about the future, but about finding peace, finding uh, self-empowerment, finding compassion and love in the now. And that aspect of the religion can be very beautiful and nice, but that's not where we are with this one. <laughs> no. And so I felt like that just deserved a whole lot of uh, in-depth analysis because it's something yeah. that he does try to do. It's something he fails to do. And I'm just going to tell you, I have I have trouble believing that a non-Mormon that they're talking to at an apparently long layover in an airport in Africa, who's had his parents and his uncle murdered in a genocide, is now mm -hmm. going to have tears in his eyes when these two white Mormons are telling him that actually, yeah, well, they can they can be baptized into the Mormon church through the temple ordinances. I just mm -hmm. don't know that that would affect him that way, or maybe the tears were something other than sadness. Yeah. And if anyone has had the opportunity to watch the Book of Mormon musical, one of the great ironies of that musical is that the missionary Arnold, who's there trying to preach to them and, and has a break with reality and says, you know what, I'm just going to create a beautiful story or a remarkable story that is going to directly solve the problems in the lives of these people now, because the way we've been doing it before is so far removed from their reality that it doesn't mean anything to them. And so he starts injecting the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars into the thing with direct answers to the problems that have them right now. That whole paradigm is modeled in that musical just to show how religion appeals to people's needs and wants and then gives them what seems to be a, a solution that then requires their you know submission to the religious authority. And, um, and and so it's so ironic that it is in a Rwandan genocide. It may even have been Rwanda that the Book of Mormon musical takes place in, um, but that, that that's all um, tied into it. Good points. I will tell you, we're going to have to leave it there. There were other talks and there are other talks that we will get to. OK, it won't be right. next week. It won't be the week after that. Maybe not okay. tomorrow. Maybe maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest <laughs> of your life. We'll get to that. But the next one is The Personal Journey of a Child of God by Elder Neil L. Anderson, which where he talks about abortion, which seems to strike a lot of people as kind of coming out of the blue at this time mm. because it hasn't been talked about or emphasized at all in recent years. By the way, this morning, this morning, because everybody's wondering, why did he talk about this? As I was pondering, as I was ponderizing this talk, Jonathan, it came to me why it was that he brought it up. Why? And I will leave that. No, 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 oh. no, no, no. Oh, you're going to leave us hanging. Well, absolutely. I got to have oh. a reason for people to come back. It, it occurred to me. I'll tell you later off the off the air. But OK, so we'll get through that. And then he talks about let me see here. So and then there's a talk. Ye shall be free by Elder. I think it's sorry. Theory K. Mutombo, who's okay. a, a gentleman from Africa, and he does a, a really good job talking. He has a wonderful personality. He actually smiles, you know, throughout <laughs> his talk. It's like, what? We've got a guy with personality giving a conference talk. What's wrong with this picture? But he well, does end up telling, go ahead. Go ahead. He may come to Mormonism from an outside tradition. Like when I was in Boston, we had former Pentecostals who had converted and it was a, a very diverse, um, congregation. But one of the great things was that you'd be giving a talk and a bunch of former Pentecostal black members in the congregation would regularly shout out, yes, praise Jesus, while you were giving the talk. And it's like, this is very different from my Mormon experience, but it really kind of gives me some confidence. So there's some goodness in that. I, I actually, I could totally relate to that. 
Absolutely, there is. And uh, in the course of his talk, he does tell a story which is probably somewhat of a whopper. Oh, but we'll talk about why that is. And um, and then finally, President M. Russell Ballard gives an extremely vacuous talk, even more so <gasps> than usual for him, I think. <laughs> OK. Uh, called Hope in Christ. All right. And it's only notable for the fact that he mentions as well as Elder Gong did. Uh, the fact that the majority of adult Latter-day Saints now are not married. And he will echo Elder Gong's comments that we talked about last week in the uh, Saturday morning session about how really, if you're married or not, doesn't matter to God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. As long as you're doing everything else you're supposed to do. So um, we can talk about that later. In the meantime, we have been at this for an hour and 55 minutes. We've got five minutes to closing. And would anybody like to give the closing prayer? <laughs> okay, well, so that's usually... somebody else's sign off. That's somebody else's <laughs> no. sign off. I'm sorry. Usually, people don't make it to the end of these these things. I don't blame them; they're long, whatever. But if you are here for the end, you can have a little preview into a character I'm coming up with okay. to kind of spar with evil apostate. Now, many of you know evil apostate. His whole thing is that he is an evil apostate because he does terrible things that are absolutely forbidden by the church, like drink tea um, or think for himself, you know, things that anyone else would see as completely banal. But um, so th there's a new character that I'm trying to work on. Um, this is this is him. You can't see him in color, but uh, he he will probably end up criticizing people in the same mode. Uh, he'll probably use the word myopic quite a bit. He's got a little cowbell here. You can see his cow ears. And if anyone insults him or calls him out for being kind of a dick, he'll point out that uh, they can't criticize him because he's a sacred cow. <laughs> he's a sacred cow. He's a sacred cow. That's right. But he's got cow ears, right? But um, but if you if you take off the cow ears, you'll see that he, he might not actually be a cow. He might just be a jackass. Well, that's what I was but wondering. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that. I was taking your word for it as a cow because of the cowbell. By the way, more cowbell. Yes. Anyway, I gotta figure it out. I gotta. I. I think he's gonna have a general authority voice on the line of Elder Oaks. I don't know if that works, but uh, we'll see. I don't know how he's gonna play into it. Anyway, um, so that's that's to be coming in hopefully beautiful, glorious color in the future. But um, there has to be a, many talents. There has to be a thing where he insults people. If they respond and call him a dick, he tells them that they can't because they're religious bigots. Then, and then, um, oh. then you can say, "Well, you're actually kind of a jackass." Is, <laughs> and, is he gonna, and it's true. Is, is he going to march under the flag of religious persecution? Oh, absolutely. That that'll be the response when everyone, whenever anyone calls him out for being a dick. <laughs> Freedom of religion is a beautiful thing. It is. All right. Well, this has been a fun discussion as usual, and we will have to do part two slash B of the Saturday afternoon session. It sounds like, you know, and if you get a window of time that's um, between earlier than then, you know, we could do it and it could be late at night or whatever. I don't know. Both of us still have lives and loved ones we have to pay attention to. So uh, until next time, this has been Talk on Things and Stuff. Better far to live and die Under the brave black flag I fly 
than play a sanctimonious part with a pirate head and a pirate heart. <laughs> Away to the cheating world go you, where pirates all are well-to-do. But I'll be true to the song I sing and live and die. A pirate king. Oh, I am a pirate king. And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. For I am a pirate king. It is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is! Hurrah for the pirate king! Hurrah for the pirate king!